ஹலோ அண்ட் வெல்கம் டு அனதர் எபிசோட் ஆஃப் யூ மீ அண்ட் தி எக்கானமி டுடே வீல் லிசன் டு ஆர் கெஸ்ட் கல்யாணி மேனன் சென் ஃப்ரம் ஜெண்டர் அட் ஒர்க் டாக்கிங் அபவுட் இந்தியாஸ் டீ கார்பனைசேஷன் பாத்வே அ ஃபெமினிஸ்ட் பெர்ஸ்பெக்டிவ் I want to point out something which must be obvious to everybody in this room today which is that this is a standard scamming toolkit and uh, it's been developed and tested across a range of countries so if you want to do a major kind of policy level scam these are the five commandments that I think everybody follows which is first you have to paint a huge visionary big picture and the pinker and rosier the colors in which you paint it the better because that pink rosy view uh is a nice way to hide the absence of the details literally the devil is actually in the details so the details are always very vague and these global the language of global commitments we hereby resolve something big and pink and we promise to something bigger and pinker you know so the vagueness on details is a very critical part of this toolkit it's also very important to get big names to sponsor the bandwagon that you're selling so whether it is some un body or preferably all of the un bodies some big star like uh, bill gates or elon musk or uh, the amazon guy bezos they have to be you know the faces and the stars modi or uh, you know all of the other big names who have spoken at the cop 26 summit always helps to have a few stars on the platform you have to fudge the data and you can confidently rely on the fact that a lot of people don't know the basic mathematics behind the data so it's possible to fudge calculations on just about everything to do with climate change everything to do with the economy and you know pass them off with technical language as totally sort of kosher whereas actually if they were looked at through the lens of common sense ordinary people like the woman on the street and the woman in the home would be able to see the fallacy and one big element of fudging the data is to pass on the blame and pass on the costs this is part of every such scam that has been implemented whether it's the uh, reconstruction of the parliament buildings and rajpath whether it's the river linking project and at the global level whether it is cli- various climate change related things and now the latest thing is net zero so i think it is very clear when one looks at it through non rosy spectacles that it is a scam and as somebody has said it's characterized by deflection denial distraction so it's like these you know the creative accounting kind of thing that friendly auditor does to balance your books so basically the the core strategy is offsetting and offsetting put in ordinary languages if you do big climate crime in location a it can be offset the damage done in location a can be offset by doing some saintly activities in location b and uh, there are lots of examples of this i'm sure people here who are cultural theorists will also see the connection with various religious proscriptions of you know priesthood and of confessing your guilt and doing something to make up for the sins that you've committed the most common thing in the offsetting strategies of 
net zero are if I create a huge emission of carbons, then I can plant a forest somewhere else, which will act as a carbon sink and absorb those emissions. And therefore, the net sort of cost to the environment or the atmosphere is zero. Now, if one just looked at this in a commonsensical way, devoid of all of the jargon, this is so incredibly stupid. First of all, the notion that a forest I plant today, which will actually become a carbon sink 50 years later, when the 1.5 degrees Celsius barrier has long been crossed, is somehow going to permit me to create a huge carbon load today. The fact that there is not enough land in the, in the world now, unused land, on which these carbon sainthood strategies of planting forests and so on, or setting up wind farms or setting up uh, green energy producing facilities, that there's no land available, that even if you set up something to offset a carbon crime in a particular location, the victims of that crime in terms of health impacts on whoever lives around the area, in terms of the economic impacts, in terms of the welfare of people who are thrown out from their land, none of this is factored in. So all of that detail is all brushed under the carpet. Similarly, the whole time element, I mean, the assumption behind this offsetting seems to be that time will stand still, the progression of climate change will freeze until I can get my offset mechanism in place and tick off, you know, the figures on both sides of the account book. So that the carbon emissions that I'm causing today are raising the temperature and are destroying, you know, human welfare today. And the offset will happen many, many years later. That whole timeline is compressed in the language of that uh, agreement on net zero that was signed at COP60. So actually, when you look at that agreement and when you look at the process by which it was discussed and agreed on at COP60, it's like treating the 1.5 Celsius target as some kind of moving goalpost. We have to get everybody to sign on to this agreement. Some kind of arcane mathematics shows that we have till 2030. And that mathematics, by the way, is deeply under dispute. And it's like, oh, you can't do it by 2030. Let's make it 2050 and see what, it ha what happens. How many more people can we bring into the tent if we make it 2050? A ah, few people are left outside. Okay, you can do it in 2070, that's all right. So it's like a political idea of getting people to sign on to something. And we saw how the chair of that uh, COP26 was reduced to tears at the thought that everybody has not signed on to one or other of the ridiculous, rosy documents that came out of the summit. So the other thing, other than this offsetting strategy, the other big problem is that very, very grandiosely framed, very risky, very unproven technologies, whether it's this whole notion of blue carbon sinks, or whether it's that idea of creating dust clouds in the atmosphere to block sun rays from coming. I mean, mad kind of 
mad scientist kind of ideas and literally mad because it's the kind of solutions that we used to see in the onion and in mad magazine so that the dependence for offsetting is on such technologies which ride on a wing and a prayer is completely hidden in the declarations so all of these technologies sound very big and important and they are sponsored by big stars so they are considered to be saleable and in selling these solutions what is actually happening is it's distracting attention from the actual structural and systemic roots of the crisis i mean it is the global economic model it is the way that neoliberal capitalism is creating and sponsoring and incentivizing emissions incentivizing climate change that part of the conversation is completely swept off the table it's completely swept swept off the map so in effect what net zero is doing it's like kicking the can down the road you know it's kicking the burden of global heating and climate change and all the disasters that come with it another 50 years down the road or another 30 years down the road so that it's the next generation that is going to pay the price this generation which has actually created the problem and crafted this declaration will be dead and gone by the time the real the real effects of climate change kick in and it's already kind of we're getting the trailers with all of these extreme weather events and so on so i wanted to share this quote from somebody whom i sort of heard one of his speeches at cop 26 so he says that it's like fitting 10 gallons of garbage into a 2 gallon bag so he's pointing to the inane kind of solutions building wind farms to power open pit coal mines or replacing natural forests with flammable eucalyptus plantations so nature is not fooled by these dumb solutions and we shouldn't be either and there were plenty of uh, groups there pointing out that what is your guarantee that the forest you plant today will not catch on fire or be set on fire or destroyed by uh, some sort of natural disaster within the next 5 years what guarantee is there how are you accounting for it as if it's a uh, you know done deal so there were absolutely no answers to the questions being raised outside the official summit on things like this so there was just a general refusal to answer questions raised by the people who are actually facing the worst of climate change so on the ground what does net zero look like what is net zero going to look like four or five things are absolutely clear and again we have enough examples in this country over the last 5 or 10 years so one thing that is absolutely clear is the strategy is to get as much of fossil fuels which are under the ground to get them all out and put them into the pipeline for use and it's really mining like there's no tomorrow and somewhere the cynical thought behind it that actually there is no tomorrow so you might as well use up all of these energy sources when which guarantee life and a good lifestyle to some people there is no tomorrow so just use them up and have a good time while they last and in the process of extracting fossil fuels what we are see in extracting fossil fuels and in creating these offset mechanisms huge land grabs we haven't had to wait for cop 26 or the net zero commitment to see that 
So displacement of communities who occupy forest land, who occupy land rich in minerals, impoverishment of these communities, criminalization on any grounds, criminalization that they are obstructing public purpose, that they are internal enemies of internal security, they are urban naxals, whatever, you know, any, any criminal law that you can use against them is used to get them to leave the land and uh, leave it open to exploitation. We are seeing on the ground greenwashing of these assaults on the rights, assaults on survival of communities. And again, they are invariably communities who are actually at the tipping edge of climate change. These are the communities which are already paying the price for climate change and protecting the comfortable middle class and the people sitting at the policy table from its worst effect. So indigenous communities, peasants, migrants, disaster victims, these are the people who are being criminalized, whose rights are being destroyed, whose chances of survival are being completely compromised. And they are actually it's like the blaming the victim strategy that all feminist activists are very familiar with. So the best way of evading responsibility, for instance, for sexual violence is to blame the victim of sexual violence for doing something to attract it. So I want to provoke some discussion on this. From a feminist perspective, actually, these gender approaches are part of the problem. The, the problem that we talked about of disguising exploitative strategies for continued good life, to package them as development and to package them as doing something good, gender is really part of the problem. Because what has happened to gender in the development industry is that the politics, the actual sharp destabilizing politics of gender, of patriarchal power has been completely diluted and it's become a very LITE light concept. So in the specific context of climate change, this whole gender discourse on climate change within the development industry has positioned women on the one hand as victims and on the other hand as saviors. So it's, oh my God, the poor women who've been displaced by this cyclone or the poor women who have been, whose livelihoods have been destroyed by this earthquake or that flood. We have to do something immediately, you know, immediately let's launch some programs to provide alternative livelihoods for them. So on the one hand, there is that victim focus, which acts as an entryway for unwanted intervention into the livelihoods of people who have so far escaped your attention. And they're also, on the other hand, positioned as saviors. So empower women to advance climate adaptation, empower women to save the livelihoods of the community, empower women to ensure health and environmental sustainability and so on. So there is this strange victim-savior binary, which is directly connected to uh, the power hierarchy of patriarchy. And what it does is it actually shifts the focus of climate action from the global and systemic level to the local and the individual level. So it's like diverting development resources to local crises and to individuals, individual women preferably, as empowering women and gender action against climate change. So it's again shifting the focus away from the global 
systemic mechanism, the global systemic structures of power that actually are creating and sustaining climate change and undermining all of these interventions. And most of the interventions that are peddled by the a development industry, heavily corporate financed, a lot of money from corporates coming in to sustain, to, to promote approaches, which shift the focus from women's rights to women's needs. So from a discourse on women's right to land and natural resources, the whole conversation shifts to providing off-farm livelihoods, market-based livelihoods, and women again are the entry point for that. Again, the onus for acting, actually acting to stop or reduce the impacts of climate change or deal with the impacts of climate change, the onus is put on women, peasants, indigenous communities, precisely the people who have been facing and dealing with climate change. So they become the sort of, you have to do this to save the world kind of thing. And of course, if the world doesn't get saved, then it's because the implementation of that project was not right. The women didn't do what the experts suggested should be done. They couldn't. Their, their approach was flawed and so on. So that cycle of victimization, deification and criminalization continues continuously. It's also a very con convenient way of making local communities into the guinea pigs and the testing grounds for tech-based solutions, which then get advertised and sold at the global level. And finally, the notion of gender offsetting, just like carbon emissions being offset by various offsetting technologies, this notion of gender offsetting also has been around for a very long time. So you have a lot of money and attention going to good gender practices in the extractive industry. So there is a whole lot of support from the development industry for setting up uh, sexual harassment mechanisms within extractive industries, which are actually money taken away from the conversation on do we need extractive industries? What is the impact of extractive industries on communities, on their health, on their welfare, on their livelihoods? So it's like this gender offsetting creates some kind of a screen behind which all of these really criminal activities by corporates, by governments, and by people who would like to just kick the can down the road, that all gets covered up. And quoting gender good practice for instance, women are displaced by coal mining, and then the coal mining company gives some low-level, exploitative, uh, extremely risky, dangerous, insecure jobs to women. And the data that will appear to justify that is so many new jobs for women were created. So that offsetting notion is actually very much part of the gender and development industry. And it is, it is very much opposed by people who are outside the industry and who are victims of this approach. So I just want to end very quickly with putting up what the climate crisis looks like or what the zero, the net zero strategy looks like if you look at it through a feminist lens. So what a feminist lens actually makes visible that a gender lens does not make visible 
is first of all the confluence of multiple hierarchies of power and privilege. This is not only about gender and patriarchy. It's also about class, it's about caste, it's about race, it's about ethnicity, it's about religion. I mean, we can just, you can just see all of those hierarchies and how they come together around the glue of patriarchy to create the kind of system of extractive oligarchy, which at this point in our country is setting the terms of debate in the economy, in politics and in the environment. So it really is the whole command of all resources, economic, political, and so on, a marriage between this corporate oligarchy and the political class and the religious fundamentalist and militaristic nationalism and so on. There's enough written and said about it, but I just want to underline that it is really a feminist lens which surfaces this and not, uh, not so much a gender lens. A feminist lens also shows, it just peels the mask of this rhetoric of development and shows what a mirage it is to talk about green growth, sustainable growth, pro-nature growth, pro-people capitalism, just how much of a mirage it is and what the hidden costs are. It is a feminist economic analysis that exposes this. And equally, it is feminist uh, movements and groups which have made visible and put on the table the links between food production, women's labor, the natural resource economy, and climate justice. So it's the feminist lens which shows how this boundary, this kind of binary between the monetized economy and the economy of natural resources, the natural and care economy, as if they are completely separate. And by creating that boundary, for all these centuries, it has made it possible for human economies to exploit the natural economy and to exploit care, work and labor. And we know that most of care work and the unpaid labor in the care economy, the unpaid labor of sustaining and replenishing the natural resource economy is actually performed by women. And it is women from indigenous communities and women from peasant communities, women from communities that depend on natural resources for their livelihood. They are actually the ones who work in a way that shows how artificial this barrier is. So it, it is that lens that shows how all of these crises are connected and how that, that connection is made invisible by the patriarchal binary between the productive and the natural. And of course, what we are seeing in India, and I mean, it's so heartbreaking, uh, what we have seen in the last decade, or maybe more than that, is the legitimization of violence, particularly sexual violence, as a tool of governance. You just have to look at Chhattisgarh. You just have to look at what has happened to forest-dwelling communities across the across Charkhand, Chhattisgarh, Orissa, uh, UP. I mean, one has to look at that movement of forest uh, workers to see how violence and particularly sexual violence against women 
by armed forces, by the paramilitary, is justified as a tool of governance, of internal security, of development, of peace, ironically. So I, I mean, I just want to leave it, leave us with this call from women's groups, women's campaigns like Via Campesina and all of the global groups who are under that umbrella, and their call at COP26 to stop talking about net zero and move to real zero. And these are things that all movements who were there were saying. Still, I just wanted to put them out there. Leave fossil fuels in the ground. Just stop the extraction. Stop the land grabs. If you stop the extraction, you stop the need to offset. You stop the land grab. Stop corporatization of agriculture. Communities that have survived are controlling the agroecology. I mean, they are approaching agriculture in, a, in the sense in which very high funda scientific research has not been able to really make that connection. That it's the agroecology which includes the people who inhabit that area as part of the ecology. So it's those solutions that they have developed and implemented. And instead of inter interfering with those solutions, the global resources on climate change, like the Green Climate Fund, should be going to support those solutions. Because there is more than enough data to show that those local agroecological approaches can more than feed the world. We can more than deal with poverty and hunger if extraction stops, if land grab stops, and if interference in the name of development policy stops. So they're calling for a transition to democratic and rights-based food systems instead of corporate food systems and food systems linked with economic indicators as success indicators. So it's not how much money farmers earn, but what happens to the food and who gets fed and what are the uh, non-monetized outcomes of that. And finally, they're also calling for recognition for women, particularly women from present, uh, peasant communities, indigenous communities and their organizations as actors for climate justice, and therefore to have a legitimate place at the table when you know concepts like net zero are being discussed. So why should only the scamsters be talking about what the commitment should contain? And why are the people who are actually talking and working for real zero, not at the table? I think this is the big question that the perspective of feminist or a, the perspective of those who are actually helping and have helped till now for us to survive climate change. This is the perspective that comes from them. And I leave it there for the moment. Hope you all had a very informative session with our guest Kalyani Menon Sen. For more sessions like this, keep on listening to You, Me and the Economy by Centre for Financial Accountability. Thank you and have a nice day.